2 Corinthians chapter 8, looking at the first 15 verses. If your sermon outline is helpful, please pull that out and use it as a guide. Last week we talked about what the Bible says about money. This week we want to talk what, how to honor God with our giving. Now, we know that in Colossians 3.23 it says, whatever we do, we are to do heartily unto the Lord. And what that means is that everything we do, whether it's, whether it's our, our, our giving, whether it's our work, whatever we do, we are to give heartily to, as to the Lord. We are to do it with, with having in mind the fact that we are not doing it for ourselves, we are to honor God. So when it comes to our finances, when it comes to our budgeting, when it comes to our giving, when it comes to every, anything doing with finances, the bottom line is, is we are to handle our finances in a way that is honoring to God. Now, what is the complication with that? The complication is that many times our finances are a place of security for us. If we don't have enough, we feel insecure. If we have a certain amount, we want to hold on to it. And the problem is, is that if we give money too much of a position in our life, it can take the place of God in our life. We can depend on money more than we depend on God. We can be more committed to accruing and, and, and accruing and making sure our money is stable than we can to being committed to God and trusting Him with every aspect of our life. Now, Paul was aware of this problem. And so in writing to one of his young mentors, a man by the name of Timothy, he writes these words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that can plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced pierce themselves with many hangs. And then he says this in verse 17. He makes this, kind of brings it all together with this verse. He says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Two things. God is saying, don't depend on money because money is unreliable. Do we need money to live on and to give? Absolutely. But do not allow it to become number one in your life. Number two, he warns us that a love of money can begin to erupt in our life where we begin to use it as our security. And he says a love of money can cause us to move away from God. See, how many times have we read stories about individuals who did things that weren't right because of a desire to get financially ahead in life? Remember the story of a bandit by the name of Jose Rodriguez. And Jose was a known bandit who would come in from Mexico and rob the people of Texas, and then he'd go back into Mexico where he was safe. He did this so successfully that finally a Texas ranger just couldn't stand it anymore, and he went into Mexico to find him, and he went into a small town, went into a cantina, and there, there Jose was. He went up to talk to him and realized that he didn't speak he didn't understand English. So he finds a young man there who was able to interpret it for him, and he said, tell Jose Rodriguez, tell this famous robber this. He said, I'm going to give you two options. Number one, you can tell me where all the money is. You can give me all the jewelry you stole. You give it to me. I'll go away. You're a free man. He said, if you don't, if you don't do that, I'm going to shoot you right now. Well, Jose Rodriguez realized that this Texas Ranger was serious. He was scared. He said, he's got me cornered. So he tells this young interpreter, he said, whatever you do, tell him that I'm going to give everything back, that all he has to do is go to the town well. In the town well, if he goes where the handle is, if he counts six bricks down and six bricks to the right, he pulls that brick out. Everything's hid underneath there. Please tell him before he takes matters into a more serious level. 
Well, the young man thinks about everything that Jose Rodriguez has just said, and he pulls himself up to a full height and said this, Jose Rodriguez is a brave man, and he says that he is ready to die. See, sometimes, friends, the love of money can bring us into doing things, if we are not careful, where we'll compromise our convictions. So what do we need to do? What do we need to do to know in order to honor God with our giving? To say, God, I'm going to put you number one. I want to give in a way that's honoring to you, and I want to follow your word. I want to obey the principles of this book so that I, when I get to heaven, I have no regrets concerning how I handle my finances. Honoring God with my giving means, number one, I will give regardless of my circumstances. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And, and then in... Verse 2 is translated by the New Living Translation. It says this, They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. So there are two things happening here. Number one, Paul says, these Macedonians Christians, they're poor. They don't have much. And on top of that, they have a lot of other difficulties going on in their life. But the second thing that's true about them, they are joyful, and they overflow with generosity. Now, these two characteristics, friends, being poor and going through life problems and overflowing with joy and being overflowing in generosity don't always come together. For, for many of us, when we have trouble and, and adversity, when we're going through difficult times, when we're struggling financially, when we're struggling with other issues in our life, we usually are not joyful and we're usually not generous. We usually take kind of a protect and secure mode and bring everything in and say we have to be more careful and we kind of want to try to find some emotional feelings of peace in the midst of feeling that we're losing things that, we're, that we think we need. So let me ask you a question. When do you need God's help more? Do you need God's help more when you don't have enough, or do you need God's help more when you have enough? Now, in many ways, we need God's help both times, but it seems at times that we need God's help more. We cry out to Him more when we're going through difficult circumstances. And what, what Paul is beginning to teach, he says, don't let circumstances de- determine your giving. Now, why is this? He said, because God has given us certain promises that if we follow these promises, He is going to come through and work within us. See, friends, the basic principle is this. When we tithe, when we give, when we are faithfully faithful financially, when we follow the principles of God's Word and we say, God, I'm going to give my 10%, I'm going to present you with tithes and offerings, we are saying this. We're saying, God, I need you in charge of my giving. I need you to be a part of my finances. I need you to give me wisdom. I need you to give me provision. I need for you, God, to help me with what I have. When we don't tithe, we're saying, God, I'm on my own. I'm going to do it myself. I don't want your help. I don't want you to be a part of it. And we're kind of putting ourselves in a position where we are moving outside of the blessing of God. Well, what is the promise of God? In Malachi chapter 3, the prophet Malachi says, 
Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, so there will, there will be enough food in my temple. If you do so, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Do you know this is the only place in the Bible where God calls us to test him? He says, just give me a chance to prove that I'm faithful. Just give me a chance to show you that if you tithe, I'm going to take care of your needs. Now add to this Philippians 4.19, where Paul says, and this same God who takes care of me, he will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which has been given to us in Christ Jesus. So what is the premise? We've been talking a lot the last few weeks about premise and promise. If you follow the premise, then you will receive the promise. The premise that God is saying, the starting point, our responsibility is we are to trust God and obey him. We are to tithe. We are to present our offerings to him and say, God, I want you, I want you to know that you are more important to me than my money. I'm trusting you with my finances. And when we do that, God says, what will I do? He says, not only will I meet your needs, but I will pour open I will open the doors of heaven and I will pour out a blessing so great you will not be able to contain it. So what God is saying, you give financially and I'm going to pour my blessing out on all of your life. What do you need? God knows where you need blessing. He knows where you need his provision. He knows where you need something special in your life that's going to help you get through the tough times of life. When we trust, when we obey, God covers us and he takes care of us. Number two, honoring God with honoring God with my tithe means I give myself before my money. Look at verse 5 of chapter 8. Chapter, verse 5 says, And they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So here's the question. What is it that God wants most from you? What is it that God wants, wants most from me? The thing God wants most from you and from me is He wants us. He wants me. The first thing God wants is not my finances. He wants my heart. He wants my life. He wants me to come and say, Lord, I need you. First of all, we need him as a savior, right? We need him to be the forgiver of our sins. We need him to be the one who provides for us a place in heaven. And he says, God, and when we realize that what he has done, we say, God, you've taken care of my salvation. You have taken care of my needs. I give myself unconditionally for you, to you. And friends, once we do that, then the process begins. The process begins of God transforming us, the God changing us, the God moving us from, from selfish earthly thinking to godly thinking, biblical thinking. And we begin a process of saying, God, the most, the thing you want most of all in my life is me. Now, what happens? Now, how many of you remember when you were young, maybe you and a friend were doing something, it was something that you, you wanted to do, but you were a little hesitant, you were a little scared. And so you said to your friend, hey, if you do it first, then I'll do it. If you, if you do it, then I'll do it. You know, we never have to worry about having that kind of a discussion with God. You know why? Because God went first. In Romans 8, chapter, in, 5, chapter, in Romans 5, 8, it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what did he do? When you and I were doing the very things that God said we shouldn't do, when we were sinning, when we were doing the things that caused him grief, he loved us. He died for us. He said, I know what they're doing is wrong, but somehow... They have to be changed. And you know what God knew? God knew that love would change our hearts. God knew that love would change our character. God knew that love would be what would take us from where we are and get us to where 
to be the people that he's called us to be. So God starts it. God invited us to have a relationship with him. We respond to that relationship. And then what he's called us to do is to give ourselves to other people on his behalf, to become his feet, to become his voice, to become his legs, to become his speakers of truth. Philip Yancey, in his book, Vanishing Grace, tells a story of a man who spoke uh, regularly to str- and helped struggling companies. And one day he was looking over all the, the coursework he'd, uh, he did, the education he took to prepare him for his career, and he realized that he had never taken a course on how love might impact the workplace. What would be the difference if love was inserted into a, into a workplace? And he was talking to a group of people about this, and he gave this example. He said that although the, this company discouraged fraternizing, one of the upper women's and upper managements began, starting, began to stop into the offices and visiting with the employees that were under her direction. The first, first person she stopped in and visit was terif- visited was terrified, thinking that she had come into his office to fire him. No, she said, I just figured after working together for three years, I should get to know you. She spent time with all 13 of her employees, and one day her boss called her in to his office. And he said, I don't know what you're doing, he said, but this company was almost bankrupt. It's turning around, and when I ask our personnel about it, when I ask the people who work here why, everyone, everyone said you were responsible for the change. Friends, when we begin to reach out in love, when we begin to care, when we begin to initiate. Sometimes we can see a person that looks a little standoffish. You ever ask yourself, I wonder what's gone on in that person's life? And maybe what they need is some interaction. Maybe they need someone engaging. Maybe they need someone to show them love and bring them out and to let them know they're not alone. Who is responsible for all that God has done in your life and my life? God has changed us. What is our response to him? To give him ourselves and to say, God, you have me. And out of that, allow him to use us as a vessel to change others. Number three, honoring God means that I will give out of thankfulness and not out of obligation. I will give out of thankfulness, not out of obligation. Let me give you two verses from chapter 8, one verse from chapter 9. Verse 8 of chapter 8, I am not commanding you to do this, but I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. Verse 12, whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. And chapter 9, verse 7, each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This verse tells us, first of all, these verses, that he wants your giving not to be something that is separate from us, but to be a genuine expression of gratefulness for what God has done. In other words, he wants our giving to him to be tied into our experience with him. He wants our giving to him to be a part of our a reflection of our relationship to him. The second thing it says is that we are to give eagerly. How many of you have ever been really eager to do something, eager to take a trip, eager to have this experience or this adventure? He is saying that we are to be eager to be able to give. We are to look forward to being able to give to God. We are to anticipate, God, I'm going to be able to give an expression to you of how much you mean to me. See, friends, sometimes we get a bit impersonal with our relationship with God. And what I mean by that is we have a relationship with God, but we haven't maybe thought about how 
how God has specifically changed our life. And sometimes when we sit down and say, where would my life be without God? And we begin to see, man, this would happen and this would happen. And I wouldn't have this. I wouldn't have this. And we begin to say, God, you've done this for me. You've done that for me. And all of a sudden, our relationship with God not, does not become something that is static. It becomes something that is real. And we say, God, I want to allow my giving to be an expression of my gratitude for how you've changed me. And number three, under no circumstances are we to give reluctantly. To give, we are to give because we are grateful for what God has done. We are not to give reluctantly. How many of you dream of someone reluctantly loving you? Well, I just just wish somebody could reluctantly just find some space just to kind of give something to me. Nobody wants to be loved reluctantly, friends, and neither does God. God does not want to be loved loved reluctantly. He wants to be loved purely and, and as an expression of our life to God for what He has done for us. Number four, honoring God with my giving means I'll follow the example of Jesus. In verse 9 it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now, what is he saying? He is saying we are, we are to follow in his example. It seems that Paul is saying that sacrifice is a normal part of loving. That if you love someone, you are going to sacrifice for them. You are going to do things that aren't normal. If I'm going to love my wife, I'm going to do things for her that maybe are not my natural inclination, but because I love her, I'm going to do things that allow her to know that I care, that I feel loved, even if it's not something I would naturally do. Sacrifice is a normal part of loving. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus was saying that he was in heaven experiencing the glory of God, but because he loved us, he came Left, in, left heaven, willfully entered the limitations of human life, became and lived the life of a criminal, was crucified so that we would be able to live, so that we could replace our fear with hope, replace our anxiety with peace. Christ took what we deserved so that we could have what he could give. Christ took what we deserved so that we could have what only he could give. Now, what God calls us to do, he calls us to follow in his image, and not just follow in his image, but we, he calls us to be transformed into who he is. In other words, God calls us, instead of le- remaining in a selfish mindset, we are to be transformed and to live in a way that exemplifies his grace, his love, his character. We are to put away anger and embrace peace. We are to put away selfishness and embrace giving. Now, how does this happen? Friends, this is, in my life, I have found that that only happens as I recognize that some of my ways of living are not the best. And I say, God, here I am. I want to cooperate with you in your transformation of me. And you know what God does? He then places me in situations where I begin to be stretched, where I begin to have the opportunity to learn that the selfishness, the emotion that I have that leads to selfishness is nothing compared with the sense of fullness I receive and peace I receive when I understand the power of giving. And what happens is ultimately as God changes us, we take on his attributes. It's Christ in us. On October 2nd, 2006, Around 10 o'clock in the morning, Charles Carl Roberts entered the West Nickel Mines Amy School in Pennsylvania. He carried a 9mm handgun, a 12-gauge shotgun, a rifle, a bag of black powder, two knives, tools, a stun gun, 600 rounds of ammunition, wire, and plastic ties. And using plastic ties, he bound 11 girls ages 6 to 15. 
As he prepared to shoot them, Marion Fisher, 13, stepped forward and said, shoot me first. Her sister, Barbara, allegedly asked Robert to shoot her second. He shot 10 girls, and then he killed himself. Three of the girls died immediately. Two others died in the hospital by the next morning. And you might remember the tragedy stunned the nation. People couldn't believe this took place. But what also stung the nation was the response of the Amish people. The forgiveness that the Amish people offered was even more amazing. Where you think there would be anger and a cry for justice, there was love and forgiveness. Now imagine this. This Carl Roberts went in and did this horrible thing, and he killed himself. Imagine what his family must have been going through. How could he do this? How in the world could this ever happen? How, how, could, how, could, how could our son, how could our, our brother do what, what was just done? More than half the people who attended Robert's funeral were Amish. An Amish midwife who had helped birth several of the girls murdered by the killer made plans to take food to the family's house. This is what she said. This is only possible if you have Christ in your heart, only possible if we have been transformed by the character and love of Jesus. Friends, Jesus' love is always generous. It's always sacrificing. It's always an expression of our love and our care. Generosity is so great. It can seem absurd, but there it is, the absurdity of generosity, the absurdity of grace. God, would you change me so that my response is like your response, not the typical way I would response in the defensive reaction to myself. Number five, honoring God with my giving means that I will help others through what I give. I will allow my giving to be a vehicle that will help and lift up the life of another person. Verses 13 to 15 of chapter 8. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul is simply saying that when we have abundance, the most natural thing to do is to give to the needs of those who don't have enough. In fact, in verse 13, he says, the point is not that we give to the point of need, but we simply give out of abundance. Now, it's interesting, in verse, in verse 3, what was the experience of the Macedonian Christians? He says this, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. They gave more than what was comfortable of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Here are people who knew what it meant to be in need, and they said, we have some brothers and sisters in Jerusalem who are also in need. Help, let us help them. Let us give so that we can ease their suffering, so that we can ease their pain. So what are the benefits of giving? You know, there are numerous benefits of giving. Let me give you three. First of all, the first way you benefit I, is, three ways I benefit when I give is I remain obedient to God. Let me ask you a couple questions. For those of you who are married, what kind of level of commitment do you expect from your spouse? Now, what level of dedication do you expect from a surgeon who's going to cut into your body? How would you feel if your spouse came to you and said, you know, I'm going out tonight and I want you to know that I'm going to be 69% committed to you? How would you feel if your surgeon said to you on the morning of your operation, I'm really glad that you're going to be asleep during this operation because I had a really rough night last night. We wouldn't like that. None of those responses would be acceptable. And with God, they're not acceptable either. 
God calls us to complete obedience. Now, does God know we're imperfect? Does God know we struggle? Absolutely. He knows we're going to have struggles. He knows we're not going to be able to do it perfectly. But you know what he asks of us? He says he wants us to seek him. He wants us to obey him. He wants us to be willing to say, God, here I am. Change me, shape me, make me who you want me to be. God, help me obey you. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commands. Luke eleven twenty eight says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. James four seventeen. anyone who knows the right thing to do but does not do it is sinning. And what is the benefit? What happens when we obey? What does God say is the benefit we receive? He says in Philippians 4, 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. God says when we obey, what happens? We don't have the conflict of being in tension with God. We have the peace of God that comes from being obedient to God that rests in our lives. Benefit number two, my trust in God grows. It's often been said that experience is the best teacher, that experiences you and I have are what describe our reality. The Apostle Paul, from early age, probably three or four years old, to the early teens, spent his life immersed in the Word of God. He was training to be a teacher of the law. And in the Old Testament, when someone was training to be a teacher in the law, they, they literally lived at the temple. They were absorbed in the Word of God. And so from ages three or four to age early or late teens, he learned, he learned the law. He learned the Mosaic law. He learned the traditions. He learned all the innuendos of the law. And he became convinced that this law was truth. And he said anything apart from this was not truth. So when he began to hear of this new group called Christians that were perverting the truth of God, saying the Messiah already came and you don't have to offer sacrifices, that Christ's grace is enough, he was outraged. And he wanted to eradicate Christianity and he wanted to wipe this cultish group that he thought was cultish from the face of the earth. He went from town to town, from house to house dragging all those out who stated that Jesus was the Messiah. He beat them. He threw them in jail. He was relentless and he was ruthless. He believed that the ends justified the means after all these crazy people were desecrating what the Old Testament said was true. And then something happened. Oliver Oliver Wendell Holmes made this statement. He said, when a person's mind is stretched by a new thought, it never returns to its original dimensions. When a person's mind, when my mind, when your mind is stretched by a new thought, it it never returns to its original dimensions. Well, on the road to Damascus, Paul's mind was stretched by a new thought, a new reality of God. In verses, in Acts 9, 3 to 5, we read this. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Friends, from that day forward, his life was never the same. Why? Because he experienced the reality of God. Now how does this tie in with our giving? Friends, when God says we are to tithe, when we are to bring the tithes into the storehouse, when he said we are to bring our offerings, and and we do that... And then God shows up and God meets our needs and we see him active in our life. We see his blessings flowing out. It goes from I hope so to I know so. And the more we see and experience the reality of God, the more we say, God, I want to trust you in this area. And we're more willing to let God into every area of our life as he transforms us and shapes us and changes us from who we are into who he wants us to be. The third blessing, the third benefit is God promises to bless me. 
I've read the two passages from Malachi 3 that said he's going to open the head floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing on us so much we can't contain it. And Philippians 4, 9 that says the same God who took care of me will supply all of your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. There are two ways that God blesses you. He blesses you by promising to meet your needs. And number two, he encourages you by saying, I'm going to bless, I'm going to pour out blessing on other areas of your life. Friends, these are not just words. They're the, they're, they are the promises of God intended for the people of God so that we might experience the reality of God. These are the promises of God intended for the people of God so that you and I might experience the reality and blessing of God. What are the giving basics? There are two things the Bible teaches about giving. In Malachi 3.10, the Old Testament says we are to bring all the tithes into the storehouse. The storehouse was the place that the Old Testament people went to get food when they were out of food. It was the place they went to get food. It was the place that they went to get feeding and nourishment. So the Bible is saying bring your tithe into the storehouse. To the place that you were being spiritually fed, fed, that is where you were to tithe. The place where you were receiving spiritual nourishment, where your church home is, where your church feeding takes place, that is where you're to bring 10% to the storehouse. The New Testament also talks about the giving of an offering. An offering is given is above 10% where God leads you, wherever God leads you to give. In Acts 24, 17, Paul says, Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. He came to present offerings that were on top of his tithe. Friends, God does not demand offerings at 10% or rather what he leads us to give out of a natural growth of the transformation he's doing in his life. Here's the two principles as we close. Number one, we cannot outgive God. You cannot outgive God. When we come to God and we give him ourselves and we become obedient in every area of our life, God begins to shower us and he teaches us and he prepares us. He gives us what we need. And the second principle is my giving to God always flows out of my relationship with him. God does not want to demand so, be distant and say, I'll just do it because I told you so. God died so that he could have a relationship with you. God died because he wanted to have an intimate change in your life. He wanted to impact in your life in a way that you would know that he cares for you personally. He wants his love for you to be so intimate that you never doubt about the fact of whether he loves you. So here's the question. What kind of a Christian relationship do we have? What kind of a Christian life do we want to have? Do we want to have a life where we encounter God based on the experiences of other people that we hear about? Or do you want to make your own God experiences where you see Him show up in your life, where you make your own God memories that you build upon? See, the Bible says that when you accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live in your heart. If you've accepted Christ, you have the Holy Spirit living inside you. And and in the book of Acts, it talks about the many things the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit is to comfort. It is to correct. it It is to direct. And so it is possible for the Holy Spirit, for you to learn how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life so that you can hear him directing you and then experience what happens as you obey. Mark Batterson in his book, The Grave Robber, talks about a lady who was a director of a dream center in Birmingham, Alabama. Dream Center was an agency, a group of people um, were, that had a building where people, would, people who were needy could come to and find help. And she said she was getting ready to go to work that morning to go to the dream center. And as she was leaving the house, she felt, um, she felt a prompting that God was telling her to go back and get a pair of woolly socks. 
And it was so crazy, but it was so definitive that she was supposed to go back and get a pair of woolly socks that she said, this might be God. So she turned around, went back in the house, got a pair of woolly socks, put them in her purse. Well, she drove to work, and when she got to work, she found, she saw that there was a prostitute passed out on the front steps of this dream center. She carried the woman inside and then called 911 to get her help. And as she held this woman in her arms, the woman slowly regained consciousness. And when she regained consciousness, the director of the Dream Center asked her this question, if I could get you anything right now, what would it be? And without hesitation, the shivering woman said, I'd love a pair of woolly socks. That's when she reached in her purse and pulled out the pair of woolly socks that God had directed her to put into her purse that morning. Friends, never think that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. Someone once asked me, how do you discern the voice of the Holy Spirit? This is how I describe it. When Joy, my wife, and I started dating when we were in seminary, the first couple times that I called her, she didn't recognize my voice. There were so many other guys calling. No, not really. (laughs) Sorry, honey. But after calling, after I called her three or four times, all of a sudden she recognized my voice, and if she called me, I recognized hers. We, we listen, friends, we listen to and identify with those things we love. We listen to and identify with those things we love. God has given us a tremendous gift in the, old, in the Holy Spirit. And as we love God, we are going to listen to his voice and we are going to learn to discern it so that when God gives direction, we can begin to respond. And the more we respond, the more that voice becomes discernible and the more we can hear and obey. Friends, if there's one thing God wants from you, he wants a personal relationship with you where he can change your life. And wherever you are this morning, whether in a great place or a difficult place, God loves us where you are, loves you where you are, and he wants to take you to where he wants you to be. He is a personal loving God that calls us to obey him so that we can put ourselves in a place where we receive his blessing and have the life that he wants us to have. Would you stand with me as we close our service this morning? Father God, I thank you for your rich and kind generosity. I thank you for being a personal God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. And I thank you, Father, that you care for us and you want to help us, that we are your children called by your name. And Father, may we embrace your love. May we willingly obey you. And Father, when times are tough, might we trust you. And when it's hard to obey you, may we begin where we can and know, God, that you give us credit for trying. And may we grow in an understanding that the safest place to be, Father, is in the center of your will. This tithing stuff, this money stuff can be tough for many of us. And Lord, help us to learn to trust you, to give our offerings as an expression of our love for you, that in all things, Father, we might respond to your love and be faithful to you. And as you leave, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may he lift up his countenance upon you and may he give you his peace. Go in his peace and his grace. Amen. Have a great day.